I actually saw a guy yesterday who was riding a bike who had a complete set of toilet paper packed under his jacket. Yeah, I, that was me. You saw me. <laughs> we were short on toilet paper and I was bringing some home from the office and I didn't bring my car in. So I tried to figure out how do I put this thing of, it wasn't one roll. It was a stack of like 12 rolls all in there wrapping. How do I put, so I stuffed it in my coat and rode home. And I thought the whole time that I'm the safest bike rider around. I have more padding on my person. So maybe I should just ride with toilet paper wrapped around me all the time. Probably makes sense. Probably makes sense. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another uh, red-hot and ultra-exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, where we talk about e economics. That's really exciting stuff. I, t I tell you from the beginning, this is the most exciting economics talk around on this channel at this time period. It's exciting. Yeah. Um, and I'm really good at qualifying my adjectives. We are the most exciting thing you will hear on KTEM right now. And likely the most exciting podcast that you're listening to while you hear my voice right now. Well, I think people get really excited about economics when the word recession comes up. Yeah, they, that, that does do it. Yeah, that should get everybody excited. So if we just talk about really down and dismal stuff about economics, about how the world is going to collapse and everything is falling apart and uh, everything is going bad, it'll be exciting. Yeah, should be good. This is the personal wealth coach. The guy that was just talking is Elder Baldy, Jeff McClure. The guy who's talking right now is the younger Baldy, Jake McClure. And we call ourselves Baldy because we have no hair on our heads. We also have, well, on the tops of our heads. We have beards. We're built upside down. Yeah. So uh, our, our noses run and our feet smell. And I have a six-year-old daughter. That's how I know that joke. Well, I can't say that. I knew that joke before. I've been telling dad jokes since I was little. Sorry. Actually, I told you that joke because I read it in Mad Magazine when I was about 10 years old. All right. So I've been telling dad jokes since my dad told me dad jokes. Okay, so this is the personal wealth coach. We are going to talk about economics, but we have to tell you some other things first. Number one, the personal wealth coach is not just the, the name of the most fabulous and amazing radio program that you are listening to at this moment. The only one you're listening to at this very moment. The only radio show in this instant in your life. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. Um... SEC is a government organization. They don't give any approval. They don't say, hey, you guys are great. You're registered with us. That, doesn't, that isn't part of the arrangement. They are our regulators on the investment advice side. We're not giving investment advice on the air. That is fiduciary stuff. We actually have to know who you are, and we have to know everybody that's listening, and we have to custom tailor advice to each of you. So that's not happening here. What we are doing on the air is education. 
Hopefully, we are filling in all the many, many blind spots that exist when we make up new things. Like, we've already got a question out there. What is the Federal Reserve's dot plot? What is that? Well, hopefully, we'll fill in that type of answer for you in everywhere, every way we can. Um, But that's not the only uh, disclosure we must give at the beginning of the program. Would you like to do the DEEM disclosure? The information we present on this radio program is obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. How's that sound? That's great. Uh, You sounded a little bit like a radio at one part, but I mean a radio, a robot at one part, but uh, pretty good elsewhere. I'm I'm supposed to be, that's supposed to be an unemotional presentation of a uh, disclaimer. Right. Anything else that you can think of? It was covered before striking. Unauthorized personnel only beyond this part. Yep. Yep. Okay. So what happened in the market this week? Well, the S&P 500 did a lot this week. It broke records on Wednesday, as did the Dow. The Dow broke through 33,000 for the first time. And it was just going to great guns. And then on Thursday, it dropped about 100 points. The S&P 500 dropped about 100 points. And then it sagged a little more on Friday and then came back up again a little bit. And it went up and down quite a lot during the week. And the end result was it fell 0.77% closed at 39.13.10, which is to say it got very excited about nothing. But it does that. That's what the nature of the market is. Um, It's up 4% year to date, but it's lower now than it was in mid-February. So the S&P 500, if you just looked at that, has been sterlingly unspectacular so far this year. Now, the other end of the S&P, there's two ends of the S&P 500, but there's actually more than two ends. The front end and the back end? There's the big big growth and there's the mid-cap value, opposite corners of the S&P 500. The the major rise in the S&P 500. It's been going on for the last oh, eight or nine months or maybe, well, close to a year, has come from the large cap growth side where very, very large companies that are going to make bigger profits during the pandemic uh, have been bid up higher and higher and higher on the expectations of much future, much higher growth. And I think they got past the much higher growth into the fact that the stock is going up, so I'm going to buy it a long time ago. I don't think there's any rationale to the way some of the stocks, the tech stocks and the large tech stocks in the S&P 500 are, are, have gone to multiples, multiples meaning multiple time they're earning. Um, but it's reversed. And the other end of the other corner of the S&P 500 from large cap growth is mid cap value. And you say, well, why don't we, can, somebody said, might say, why don't you consider small cap value because they have the opposite end because there aren't any small cap companies in the S&P 500. So mid-cap is as small as it gets, and value is the opposite of growth in the market. So we use the CRSP mid-cap value index. It actually dropped 0.52% this week, but it's up 14.25% year-to-date. Now compare that to the S&P 500 as a whole, and you can see that something's going on. The S&P 500 is up 4%, but the the mid-cap value, the smaller value-based stocks that are in the S&P 500, are up 14.25% year to date. That's that's a reversal in the market. The interesting thing about the uh, about this reversal from a historical point of view, 
which is where we look at things as geeks we are, is that this reversal has occurred every time large cap growth has gotten completely out of hand, and it got I, pretty much out of hand, in my opinion. But it occurs after the market starts to fall. It is an indication that we are stabilizing in a bear market. Problem is, there's no bear market to stabilize in. The market, we're still distinctly in a bull market in the stock market. Everything points to the fact that we're still in a bull market. And now value is outperforming growth across the board, which is very, very healthy. It's something we've not seen before. But then again, we've never seen a down market caused by a major pandemic before. It's where we're able to measure and see what's going on. So this is a new experience. It is literally different this time, which is a bad thing to say in many ways. But it's true. The market is behaving in a manner that is different from what we've seen historically. And there's a reason for that. I suppose if we were able to go back to 1920, 21 in in that down market and take a look at what the market was doing in great detail, which we can't because we don't have the data to do that, we'd probably see the same thing happening. The problem is that if you have a different circumstance, then things are going to look differently. And that's what we're seeing. This This is an unusual down market. It's an unusual recession that we had. It's one that no one in the market has seen before because the last people to saw it, to see it saw it 100 years ago, and there's very few, very, very few. As a matter of fact, there's a round number of very, very few traders that are still here from 100 years ago, a very and, round number. And it's not like they have this, – this is one of the crazy things about this scenario is that they don't have a whole lot of wisdom to offer on exactly this situation they didn't have the data available at the time that the trades were occurring back then. So the, the wisdom that they can offer is more about avoiding the, the emotion of panic and greed. And, and so that's, that is also wisdom that I, I don't think we should ever discount that wisdom. That's some of the most important stuff in the market. Back in the early 20th century, in the first half of the 20th century specifically, when the markets would go down and things would turn south and, Tax revenues would fall off. Federal government would stop spending money, which would exacerbate the problem. So we're having a reverse go on this time. This is a really interesting economic experiment that's going on. So far, by the way, it seems to be working very, very well. We'll just see how it works over the long term. The other side of that, the other side of the market, the 10-year U.S. Treasury note, which is the benchmark for bonds, rose to 1.726%. Now, that's 88% higher from where it was at the beginning of the year. That is an astonishing rise in interest rates until you figure that 1.726% is still not... If you give you money, you're basically loaning money to the government at 1.7%. Now, that 1.7% may sound like high compared to what we saw earlier in the year when it was less than 1%, but inflation is running about 1.7%. So you're still loaning money to the government for no real interest. The year-over-year inflation right now is 1.7% according to the Consumer Price Index. Now, a lot of that is energy and food, but still, it is still 1.7%. And then we consider, the Fed considers that to be low. Historically, the 10-year Treasury will run at or a little above current inflation. So that's the trend. Treasury is behaving, I think, very, very, very rationally, the interest rate on the 10-year Treasury, but it has got some people concerned in the stock market that inflation is coming and the sky is going to fall and Chicken Little said so. I think you are uh, right on it. This this is one of the things that we were talking about this before the program started. We both view that as a good sign 
Because as long as we have people that are ready to panic in the market, then we are likely to have more bull market ahead. I know that sounds counterintuitive. We can talk about that more in a few minutes. Basically, there's something called a risk-free return. And if you buy a United States Treasury note for 10-year Treasury note and you hold it for 10 years, the risk of not getting your money back is effectively zero. Now, how much the money will be worth at the other end is the question, but you're not taking any risk. And as a result of not taking any risk, if you get back as exactly as much as inflation is over the next 10 years, you're better break even. So purely from a theoretical point of view, a 1.7% inflation being reported in the CPI, which just was reported last week, and a 1.7% yield on the 10-year Treasury note should be perfectly normal. Why has it got people scared? Very frankly, because a lot of the traders in the market are betting on the, have been betting on the um, the pandemic going on for quite a while because a lot of the really high flyers in the market are based on the fact that people are staying at home and buying a lot of stuff rather than spending their money on travel and spending their money on things like uh, uh, going out to eat and a lot of the things Movies. We're not spending our money on there. We're spending our money on buying stuff. And so the the market has run up in the companies that deal in stuff rather than services. And it's got the people who ran those stocks up so high a little bit on the nervous side to say maybe the recovery is happening faster than we anticipate. I know that sounds really backwards and upside down, but in the short term, the market can be backwards and upside down. And usually is. Yeah, I would say in the short term, the market usually is backwards and upside down the on the long stretches our our averages come in to be pretty accurate uh on in the market area and it's kind of like kind of the the long-term history of our democratic republic that is the united states if you pick any point in history following about 1780 and you look at the headlines in any newspaper during that time period about what's happening in Congress, what the newest threats are to our republic, you will find that the consensus broadly across the entirety of our country is that Congress has no idea what it's doing and why did we ever elect them at any point in our history. And yet the average has somehow, somehow turned out fairly well. <laughs> That's weird. Uh, some some put some divine influence on that. I look at it and say, all right, well, this is a, a massive experiment that we are uh, participating in in a socioeconomic system. It's important to remember when we look at Congress, and I've even made the joke on the air before that the what's the opposite of progress and it's Congress. Right. Um, matter of fact, I made that just before uh, our congressman walked in the door one time to be on a radio show. I don't know whether he heard it or not, but he never came back, so maybe he did. Um, John Carter was was on a radio show just immediately following saying that. But we have the oldest government in the world right now. And a lot of people are shocked when they hear that, but it's a fact. When our government was formed, the United Kingdom was ruled by a king, literally ruled by a king who could dismiss parliament, who could make laws and break laws and make rulings and cause people to, to be killed. Uh, he could declare what well, he declared war on his own. And you look at the rest of the governments around the world and you look 
back to when the current type of government started and you find out the United States is the oldest, we have the oldest government in the world, our constitutional government. And for all of its warts and pimples, and it's got a lot of warts and pimples and they get reported on extensively, it works. It works for some strange reason. And I think Sir Winston Churchill said it best when he said that um, democracy is the worst form of government he could think of except for all the others. Uh, all right. I, and we have to get the, the pedantic tree aside. Uh, San Marino has an older written constitution than the United States. It was written in 1600. However, it's, the United States is the oldest active codified constitution. Active being a key term there. <laughs> yeah, so we are the oldest government following the same set of rules. And that says something that it's lasted as well as it has for this time period. Uh, you can hear a little bit of nationalism there. I think it's a good example for the rest of the world. I would love for the rest of the world to keep picking up on. I think that was George W. Bush's kind of push to the rest of the world is where can I foster this kind of government elsewhere? Didn't wind up working out so well because we have a very different set of circumstances here and have had from the beginning. We, were, we fought for it ourselves. Somebody else didn't come to fight to give it to us. And that is, anyway, I'm, I'm walking down a political and philosophical path that has nothing to do with what we normally talk about, except to say that the market tends to get it right on average very similarly to the way throughout our history, America has tended to keep moving in a good direction as far as who we are and what we're trying to accomplish. And I know there are a lot of people that are listening right now to say, well, we made these horrible things or, yeah. And when we find out that we do horrible things, because everybody does horrible things if they've been around for more than 200 years, we try to fix it. That's kind of what the market does too. So anyway, that was a sidetrack. I think it's an important one, but it seems sort of trivial on the surface. It's worth digging into. Are you done with your market commentary? Or you got more up there? Just a little bit. The oil, the price of oil fell 6.35% to $61.40. But it's an important thing. Oil, why do we report on oil? West Texas Intermediate specifically. Because it not only affects the rest of the economy, it also has is an indicator of what's going on. Supply and demand works very clearly in oil. And uh, it's up 27% year to date, which is, I think, important to note. It's a forecast that the economy is recovering, just like the yield curve. And the the yield curve uh, for the United States Treasury, different maturities, with the, the longer maturities being higher interest and the shorter maturities being lower interest, down to nearly effectively zero in the shortest term, is an indicator of where the economy is going. It's a, probably one of the most, well, I think it is, of the single indicator, and there's a lot of indicators, it is probably the most prescient of all of them. I mean, if it, we get an inverted yield curve, we generally have a recession. If we get a very steep yield curve, we generally have a lot of uh, economic growth in the next 18 months to, uh, to two years. And we have a very steep yield curve right now. The 30-year Treasury is out there at about 2.5%. And we go from 0 to 2.5%. That's a heck of a big difference in 30 years. And it, it, in other words, the economic indicators that we use in the markets all are con 
confirming that we're looking at a tremendous amount of economic growth coming in the next two years. That's it. Okay. Well, we have a couple of questions that have been waiting from before we even started the program. So people are getting in line. Uh, John, he has two questions. He, and this is something I comment about every, every week because I find it intensely humorous. Uh, he has the paper version of the Wall Street Journal. And he receives that. And, and I totally get that. Reading on paper is far more pleasurable in most cases. Uh, I don't generally have time to, but it's more pleasurable. And when I get the chance, I enjoy reading paper. Well, he then takes a picture of the paper, newspaper, that you have to choose other than digital. He's digitized it after having made notes on it and sent it back. And I think this is kind of the way the future's looking, and maybe it's just the present. So his question is, what's the difference? And he's got an article from the Wall Street Journal with a section uh, circled. Some investors are troubled by the amount of treasuries being bought by the Federal Reserve, which creates dollars to do this. They see its recent bond buying as different from the quantitative easing program since the 2008 crisis. So that kind of gives you a second layer to the question. The question is, what is the difference? How is this different? How is it that other people are seeing this as different than the quantitative easing programs since the 2008 crisis? No, I'm going to quibble because that's what economists do. Number one, the Federal Reserve, when it's buying bonds. It isn't actually creating money to do it. It's taking money off of its books, which aren't in circulation. It's really adding money to circulation rather than creating it. And I know that that sounds like a quibble, but if you don't include that in your math, you're going to get some weird numbers. I know most of you don't care about the math of this. If you ever do, you'll thank me for this quibble. If that's like half of one of you might thank you Anytime math's involved, thanking me for helping. Yeah. Anyway, so what is the difference? The 2008 crisis was a financial institution crisis. It had to do with loans not properly being paid. It had to do with too many loans being given by the banks. It had to do with people lying on their applications to get loans, which created a serious Money supply shortage. Money actually disappears from the system when loans don't get paid back. It, it makes it just vanish. It's one of the ways that money uh, leaves circulation forever is that you take a big loan, you consume it somehow, and then you don't pay it back. Some portion of that money is just gone, gone forever. So anybody that listened to the program 10 years ago 13 years ago, we were talking about the very real fear of deflation. As money was leaving the system, each dollar was becoming more valuable. Okay, flash forward to today. Very different crisis. We have, we have not just shorn up our banking system, built it up tougher, stronger, faster. We have the technology uh, a lot more regulations have been put on it as well, where they have to keep a certain percentage of reserves. It's a much higher percentage than it was. They had to keep reserves before. The percentage is higher. They have to go through these much, much vaunted stress tests that we hear so much about. 
Uh, and that's basically saying, what would happen if half of your loans don't get paid back? What do you think that would do to you? Let's let's put it on the books and see what happens. And all of our major banks are passing those tests. We have enough money in the system. In fact, we have more than enough money in the system. We have a lot of money in the system. This is a very different scenario than adding money to the system 13 years ago. Okay, what are the dangers that people are worried about? Well, simple, simplified to the most, the most simple, it, to the simplest, is inflation. People are worried about inflation. There's a lot of money in the system and you're putting more into the system. You're worried about inflation. Okay, we're seeing some inflation now, but again, that fear rose 13 years ago. Hey, you're dumping a bunch of money out. This could lead to inflation when we recover from the financial collapse. So the scenarios are different. It's the same tool being used. So what they're doing isn't different. It's just the circumstances in which they're doing it. They're putting money into the system. The fear that, that should be held by all the people that are terrified of inflation here, it's important to be afraid of inflation, don't get me wrong. Inflation is a danger, as is deflation. The danger in pandemics throughout history is people are running on the banks, and all you have to do, you, could, you can find this in Rome, in the, in the Republic of Rome. When, a, when what we would call a pandemic today, they just called it plagues back then, only they said it in Latin. I don't know who they were trying to talk to. Nobody talks Latin anymore. Anyway, plagues hit, runs on the bank, banks collapse. Now, banks at the time were temples, so it's a little different. In a pandemic, people are scared for weird reasons, and it's a good idea to have extra money in the system. Hopefully, the Federal Reserve will be good at pulling the money back out of the system when people are not terrified that the world is coming to an absolute halt. I know this this year, 2020, or this last year, 2020, has been extremely hard for people to remember. There's studies on this. Usually, we have milestone markers in our lives, like, uh, yeah, we met them at Suzanne's wedding, or at, uh, when we went to the Easter service, or hey, yeah, we went out to movies with them. None of those landmarks are there for that year. It's all a blur. But if, if you go back to the few landmarks that do exist, like scenes of empty cities on the news where nobody's on the road, and go back to the feeling of fear you had at the time and the number of people that said, do the banks have enough money? Should I get my cash? We fielded those phone calls where people were calling up and saying, do the banks have enough money? Are they about to collapse? Should I just withdraw everything and put it in my house? People were scared. I know it's hard to remember because we've been so inured to the fear of the pandemic, to the discomfort of living on our own. Remember the first few months. The first month, we're like, yeah, this will be over next week. The second month, oh, maybe this is the end of the world. The third month, we're like, eh, this, is, this isn't fun. And by the time where we are now, we're like, yeah, it's just this, we're just doing it. We're kind of bored of the fear. And that's what happened to Londoners when the bombing was going on. How did they continue to keep that stiff upper lip when there's bombs falling? Because they got used to it. 
So the fear that we're used to now is still the most, uh, the most prominent danger. That if people get scared enough because there's something weird happening that they go and take all their money out of the bank. There is a danger that we have ma- massive inflation at the end of this. I see a bump in inflation. Jeff sees a bump in inflation. I think we'll have it under control on the other end because so many people are afraid of it. The indicator of the what's going on in the bond market also agrees with what Jake is saying. The, the indicator is the TIPS index, which is the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. How, what's the yield on those based on when their maturity is? And sure enough, the yield is indicating we're going to have about 2.5% inflation this year. And then it drops back to 2% next year. And then it maybe goes below that in the years to follow. In other words, if you bought a five-year tips right now, you you get a lower inflation than a one-year, a lower interest rate than you would on a one-year tip. And there's a lot of indication that's going to happen. What happens with inflation is you have more money chasing things than there are things to be chased. So we begin to bid up. It's strictly supply and demand. You begin to bid up the price of things because there's a shortage. And there is a shortage right now. There's a shortage of building materials. There's a shortage of stuff. Why is there a shortage of stuff? Uh, stuff is an economic term that we use as yes. opposed to services. Stuff is the opposite of services. Yeah. And Other people will say widgets. We say stuff. Yeah. And because people are generally still staying home, they're still very cautious about going out to eat. Uh, they're very cautious about even going to the grocery store if they don't see masks being worn. There's a lot of people who say they won't go to a grocery store if a lot of people are not wearing masks. So until that is gone, services uh, purchases are going to be relatively low. And there's a lot of people being laid off as a result. So the economy is in some degree of trouble. Right now, you've got a lot of people buying stuff, and that is causing, and that's we could talk about that for two hours, logistic log jams all across the world, not just in the United States, but all around the world, people are doing pretty much the same thing. Even in China, they're doing pretty much the same thing. They're not going out to eat. They're, it's really hard to eat while wearing your mask, and there are laws in China that say you have to wear your mask, and that's making it a little difficult for Chinese to eat, which is a good way to lose weight, I suppose. But, <laughs> the mask but, diet. You get a lot of roughage, not a lot of food. The reality is that we've got a backlog and we've got inflation building in the material, in the not in not in the things that we use for services, not in the services, but in the materials. In other words, uh, toys, uh, electronics, um, building materials, all of those have to be hauled around and people are eager to buy them. And so we get these log jams, which bid up the price of transportation. And the price of transportation is what's causing inflation right now. We'll get over that. When we shift back to travel, eating out, going to movies and things of that nature for spending our money, then the pressure comes off the stuff side of things and prices will begin to moderate. So let's look at that. You mentioned this in passing. Let's talk about some of the supply chain issues. There are empty shipping containers all over the world, except in China. Because during the pandemic, other countries were not exporting. China was still exporting because they did some really draconian moves at the beginning of the pandemic and shore up their their system and started back to shipping things out. But 
nobody was shipping back to China. So those return vessels were coming back with raw goods, but they would go to Africa for the raw goods and then go to China at leaving these empty containers in the United States, in South America, in Taiwan, in uh, all over the world. There are empty containers except where they're needed in China. So China's having a, a limit on its growth. It's turned all its excess steel, just as a side note, that, you know, the whole thing, the reason why the Trump administration imposed tariffs on the world for steel was because of subsidies that the Chinese were putting into their own steel. I'm still not sure why we did it to the world, why Canada and Mexico were involved, except maybe he thought that we were going to be that the Canadians would buy Chinese steel and then sell it to us and say it was Canadian steel. But they weren't allowed to do that. Anyway, we have tariffs on everything because the Chinese were overproducing steel. Well, now they're turning their steel production to more shipping containers, which says that shipping containers and, and steel recycled steel from shipping containers, likely in a couple of years that the prices are going to be pretty low on that stuff. So that's just a side note there. That's some of the logistical issues that, that China's experiencing. And you throw into that some other things. Like this is, this is I'll, I'm going to throw out a completely counterintuitive piece of trivia. And that counterintuitive may actually give you a hint. The United States is the number one consumer and exporter combined user of oil on the planet. So Saudi Arabia exports more oil than we do. But when you consider that they export a huge amount to us to be refined and then brought back to them on a net basis, we actually export more than they do. If you look at it all the way through. So who's the number one, and plastic comes from oil. We would all agree on that, correct? I hope so. I hope so. Okay. So who's the number one producer of plastic on the planet? Go ahead. We are. That's a good guess, but that would have been my guess as well. It's not right. Who is? China. So China hmm. is using a technology and plants that are owned by Honeywell. Honeywell is a, is a corporation. Um, it's based in the United States. It is uh, rather large. It develops all kinds of things. Honeywell came up with the technology to make plastic out of coal. China doesn't have oil or much in the way of natural gas, but it has a lot of coal. So they're converting coal into plastic. They're the number one producers of plastic on the planet. But it requires some chemicals from the United States to get it done. And it's a Honeywell patented technique, which means that it is strategic strategically monitored by the United States. There's another bottleneck there that the Chinese are very nervous about. They don't have the ability to produce the plastic that they're their number one exporters in the world on without us. They're scared about that. We should be scared about that too. I mean, we, I'm, if when I look around the little studio I have set up here and I see all the plastic items uh, yep, they all came from China. Where Look around your little area. Do you see any plastic items that didn't come from China? I don't know where some of these 
came from, but I would guess you're right. Yeah. So that statement is there. Supply chain issues are everywhere. The Chinese are suffering them and we are suffering them. The Chinese produce the microchips that we use in almost everything that we do. We produce the plastic in China for the Chinese to produce the most plastic in the world. Now, wait a minute. The, the number one producer of microchips is Taiwan. Well, I guess it's technically part of China. Taiwan and South Korea right now microchips. Right. Um, the number one combiner of microchips into boards is China. So Taiwan oh. turns and South Korea turn their chips. The vast majority of those chips go to China where they're then combined with plastic to make larger boards. Right, I got you. So, and, and so when we're looking at the fundamentals of supply chain, and we look at what is actually made in the United States, what is actually made in Taiwan, what is, nothing's really ever made anymore all in one place, including in China. And if we don't keep that in mind, if we only look at the supply chain issue being an American one, then we can have some pretty nasty diplomatic issues that arise from it. I believe, as you do, that we need to be shortening our supply chains, making them more redundant. That tends to add to price and slow down production. But I think it's important, after having toilet paper be scarce for a while, and I, while I said nothing's ever only made in one place, toilet paper is mostly all United States-based stuff. Uh, we still had enough supply chain issues that it took us months to get toilet paper back on the shelves. And that's going to be something that probably lives with a whole generation or whole group of people that were alive during this era for the rest of their lives is that the things that we think are solid and Hey, they're all produced here. We have no way this will ever be shortage up except it's short. Now I actually saw a guy yesterday was riding a bike we had a complete set of toilet paper packed under his jacket. I How critical toilet paper has become. Yeah, I, that was me. You saw me. <laughs> <laughs> we were short on toilet paper, and I was bringing some home from the office, and I didn't bring my car in. So I tried to figure out how do I put this thing of, it wasn't one roll. It was a stack of like 12 rolls all in there wrapping. How do I put, so I stuffed it in my coat and, Rode home, and I thought the whole time that I'm the safest bike rider around. I have more padding on my person, so maybe I should just ride with toilet paper wrapped around me all the time. Probably makes sense. Probably makes sense. You know what toilet paper was originally invented for? Medical uh, blood clot issues, bandages. Yeah, in yeah. Uh, I know this because I just spent about an hour yesterday talking with my daughter on how toilet paper is made and what it was originally used for and how it can be used for first aid and how we shouldn't waste it and that putting too much in the toilet causes water to be on the floor and all the important parts about toilet paper we talked about. Those are critical elements of civilization. <laughs> it clots your toilet the same way it clots blood flow. That's right. Does a good job. We'll be back on the other side. If you would like to ask us questions, you can email us. Uh, we have two email addresses waiting, uh, jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com, and that is the personal wealth coach or Tango Papa Whiskey Charlie. 
We will be back on the other side of these very important announcements with more of The Personal Wealth Coach. And we're back with more of The Personal Wealth Coach with Jake and... Jeff. McClure. One day we'll be able to be together in the studio and actually be able to say that with timing correct. Right now we're separate latency. Yes, we have latency in that he is approximately three quarters of a mile from me and we are collectively about, what, 11 miles from the studio? Something like that. So uh, we are separated by time, space, latency, and um, are there anything else that we're separated by? Uh, a creek? Uh, There's a creek between us. About 30 years. Yeah. About. Something like that. Well, we can go on and talk about the dot plot. Yeah, we've question. got it. Do you want to read the question? What is the dot plot? Oh, did we really answer his first question about what's the difference between... The, oh, yeah, you did in great yeah. detail. Yeah. What's the dot plot? That's the question. Yeah. Basically, the dot is what... When when members of the Federal Reserve, voting members particularly, make speeches, they forecast when interest rates will go up or down or whatever. During times that interest rates are going up, we get the dot plot, or anticipated to go up. They get the dot plot. The dot plot notes when they make a speech when they think interest rates will be raised or when they think interest rates may be raised or whatever they say in their speech and we look at the number of voting members of the of the i started to say the s&p 500 now the federal reserve who say interest rates will be raised at the end of 2023 and the ones who are saying they'll be raised at the end of 2024 and the ones who are saying we don't anticipate when it's going to be raised you put those dots together and you have what's called a dot plot Right now, we have about seven of the members saying the end of 2023, whereas before we had about five saying that, and that makes big news and causes people to be very upset about next to nothing. So just to, uh, I think just because he asked, what is this thing? There's two versions of it. There's the official and the media version. The official version is one that was set up by the Federal Reserve. The media then said, oh, well, we'll do one up. We're going to take note of their speeches. So the media version that's being used in the article that he sent in with this um, is measuring all 17 members of the Fed, or there's technically 18, but um, but there are only 17 that that were measured in this one. Well, what are what is that? What is that about? Okay, um, there are seven positions on the Fed on the board of govern governors. That includes the the Bank of Boston, Chicago and Cleveland, Dallas, St. Louis, and Atlanta, and that's one group, Dallas, St. Louis, and Atlanta. Chicago and Cleveland are one. Uh, San Francisco, Kansas City, and Minneapolis. Those four are, are sitting on uh, one-year terms right now on the Board of Governors. Then you have uh, a rotating four plus the seven on the board, and you get 11 votes. And the dot plot that comes out from the Federal Reserve after every meeting, this comes from back in 2012 when the Federal Reserve said that they would be, or maybe it was 2014, I can't remember. They said that they would be more transparent in talking about how they were going to be making their moves on interest rates in the future. So they started both 
uh, the, the dot plot was set up by the Federal Reserve, the media comes in and says, all right, we're going to measure everybody's speeches because you you're all giving speeches all the time and you say always say, this is my opinion, not the opinion of the Fed. So we know what your opinion is. You guys are dovish. You guys are hawkish. I don't know why they have to be birds, but this is the label we give to people when they're nice or, or but that's not nice or mean. I don't know. Were they dovish or hawkish? We could get into that silliness at another time. But anyway, the majority, the vast majority of the Federal Reserve, uh, Board of Governors, voting banks, rotating banks are all saying we're not cutting back on the uh, or we're not adding to the interest rate anytime soon. The pandemic is a bigger threat than inflation right now. So I hope that that answered the, the other version of the dot plot, the media version. One of the strange things about the dot plot, it, it does measure those speeches. And it says some of them are saying we anticipate maybe if everything runs right, if everything runs the way I think it's going to run, maybe at the end of 2023, starting to raise interest rates. And others are saying at the end of 2024, and the others are saying, no, we're just going to stick to zero for a really long time. But the funny thing is when you make the dot plot, which everybody does get very excited about, and there's literally a dot plot published in the, in the Wall Street Journal that shows where the dots are. They ignore the fact that some of the people who are making the dot plot literally will not be members of the Federal Reserve when they're forecasting interest rates to go up. We don't know who the, because like you said, we've got several members of the Federal Reserve who have one-year terms at this point, and they're probably going to be replaced by somebody, and we don't know who the somebody is, and that's the people we shouldn't be listening to, because those are the people who will be voting on the Federal Reserve when it comes time to raise interest rates. It's, a, it's an interesting conundrum. One of the big things to note in the dot plot is there's nobody that expects we're going to be lowering interest rates. Considering that it's nearly zero, you think, well, of course. But when you look at Germany's uh, interest rates, for example, they're well below zero for the very short term. There's nobody suggesting we're going to lower interest rates below zero. There's, and, and there's a consensus right now, not certainly not everybody, but the majority are saying it'll be 20, the end of 2024 before we start to raise interest rates. Now, this is the other weird thing about the dot plot. And, I, and it, there's some historical validity to it, but it's still weird. The Federal Reserve is going to raise our lower interest rates in the future based on what's going on at that moment. And we don't know what's going to be going on in the future. So it's all a speculative frenzy. I mentioned before the show to, uh, to Jake, there's a guy named Marshall McLuhan who was very popular when I was in college back in 1846. And um, he said the media is the message. And uh, he's completely correct. We get terribly excited about the news, not because of anything particular that happened. Nothing has happened when we talk about the dot plot, but because the news is reporting it. And people get really excited about it, and people pay a lot of attention to it. And by the way, the dot plot has been a very poor forecaster of what interest rates are going to do. So right. we're getting excited about the fact that we're getting excited. Yeah. And I mean, we were also talking about how media makes news about media and Fox News will talk about MSNBC and MSNBC will talk about Fox News as if the news was the news. But wait, isn't that the definition of what the news is? The news is the news. Mm. I think it's quite funny that the, the media is so fond of navel-gazing. Wait a minute, I'm an economist. <laughs> That's all we do. <laughs> well, I've always enjoyed watching ships. Naval 
gazing. I see what you did yep. there. Yep. Yes. You, you have practiced your pun muscle, and I appreciated it, but I believe that our entire listening audience groaned. Um, I would groan, too, just to give you the appropriate compliment for a really awesomely bad pun. Well, if you try to like take a look at your navel without a mirror, very carefully bend over and look at your navel, you will groan. I, I think it has to do with age rather than yeah. a branch of the military. Could be. Anyway, that's so, enough about that. Yeah. The dot plot, the fiction, it's an interesting fiction where people try to forecast what interest rates are going to do. And I've had many successful investment managers tell me very clearly that trying to guess what interest rates are going to do is a sure way to end a career. Yeah. So what we do instead is we look at indicators on the overall market. I don't think anybody in at the beginning of 2020 saw interest rates dropping down as low as they were. Well, why not? Aren't interest rates predictable? Well, it depends. Did you predict the pandemic? Because <laughs> interest rates react to things. They are not the cause. They are the effect. Uh, and we're about out of time for this hour. Uh, we'll be back next hour with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. In the meantime, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we have local voicemail on the weekends, real live people during the week at... 254-947-1111. You can go toll-free, 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can listen to the radio program going back lots of years. There's links to our podcast. You can read our newsletter or sign up for it. Contact us through the contact form or email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. If you have questions, same place. We'll be back next hour.